Our lesson from the New Testament is taken from the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 17. To the angel of the church at Pergamon write, These are the words of the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you live. It is the place where Satan has his throne, and yet you are holding fast to my cause. You did not deny your faith in me even at the time when Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed in your city, the home of Satan. But I have a few matters to bring against you. You have in Pergamum some that hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put temptation in the way of the Israelites. He encouraged them to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and to commit fornication. And in the same way, you also have some who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So repent. If you do not, I will come to you soon and make war upon them with the sword that comes out of my mouth. Here you who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him also a white stone, and on the stone will be written a new name, known to none but him that receives it. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Let us bow in prayer. O God, our Father, we thank Thee for all that Thou hast given unto us, and we pray that Thou wilt increase in our spirits a sense of our gratitude to Thee for the freedoms we enjoy, for the measure of health that is ours, for the privileges and opportunities of worship, and above all, for saving faith in Jesus Christ. And because we love Thee and because we want His name to be honored among all men, we bring unto thee a part of our possession and ask that the Holy Spirit may superintend their use to the end that they may do good to much people and that they may bring honor unto thee. Bless us in this act of giving. In Jesus' name, amen. Some weeks ago, we looked first at the church of Laodicea. Remember that the word church is used in the New Testament where it is used over 150 times. It's not speaking of an institution or a denomination, but it speaks usually in two senses. One is to a local congregation of believers, and the other in the wide universal sense of all who belong to Jesus Christ in saving faith. To the church in Laodicea, our Lord Jesus Christ sent a great warning in one of the most scathing denunciations that ever fell from his lips, saying to this church that it was lukewarm, that it was neither hot nor cold, but nauseating and sickening, and that he would spit it out of his mouth and warning it to repent. 
We used the study of that lesson on that day because we were preparing ourselves to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where our Lord is demonstrated how he gave his all for us and how we are to give our all unto him. There, even to that church, he places a most gracious invitation that he stands at the door and knocks, and that those who open unto him, he will come into them and will sup with them. And then we looked at the church in Ephesus, a church that was correct and proper in its faith, but a church which had lost its first love for its Lord. We reason that there can be no effective witness or communication of the faith or evangelism without love. The church without love has lost its light. And the church, interestingly enough, is shown here as a lampstand in keeping with our Lord's prophecy that he himself was to be the light of the world and that those who were to follow him were also to be lights unto men. Next, we looked at a suffering church, the church in Smyrna last week. I'm sure that if we were seeking churches, most of us would prefer Laodicea because it was rich, or at least we would be tempted in that direction. And yet it is the one which the Lord denounces. And yet to the church in Smyrna, the shortest letter that he wrote came, and it was one that was filled with compassion for his suffering servants there. Last week I, I read again a letter which a minister had written and which I think will be helpful to you in understanding something of the feeling of this church in Laodicea, the suffering church in Smyrna, and the church we look at today at Pergamum. It's an imaginary letter, of course, in which a minister deals with irony regarding the present church situation as compared to what some churches went through in this time. Remember the church at Laodicea was described as, as lukewarm. The church at Smyrna was the church that was faithful but suffering. Now here is a letter that comes from the church at Laodicea to the church at Smyrna's pastor. Dear Ed, it has been much too long since we got together. I know how tough things must be for you there in Smyrna, what with the persecution and the backward people in that church. You've been plugging away there for years, and I'll bet you haven't had a salary increase in the last five. You and your dear wife deserve something better than that. Let me share with you some of the good things God has done for us here. When we were first appointed to this church, the people were terribly negative in their outlook. There was no building to speak of, and we were, of course, the laughingstock of Laodicea. Well, Ed, no one laughs now. The first thing we did was to ease the tensions within the church between the Gentile and the Jewish believers. I must say the compromise has worked rather well. We now have two communion services, one for each group. That way everyone is spared what might be an, un an unpleasant contact. A rabbi worked with us in setting up the liturgy for the Jewish brethren. Some have complained that there is not much reference to Jesus in it, but it is a beautiful service, Ed, and besides, you can't please everyone. 
Our evangelistic efforts this past year show the value of sound methods in the Lord's work. I have personally developed a system whereby all who visit our services are tagged, registered, and challenged before leaving. This works. The essence of the gospel is eternal life. So our users ask, our ushers ask just one question of each person who joins our church. Wouldn't you like to live forever? In the past two years, only 13% of those questions gave a negative response. Of the rest, about 42% have been enrolled as faithful members. We have reason to believe that this is the best average in Asia Minor. And then he goes on to say, our local merchants association has asked me to serve alternately with the local priest of Isis as a chaplain at their meetings. Here I have found a genuine level of interfaith understanding in that we both lead in the honor to the emperor ceremony at the beginning of the meetings. You will understand, I am sure, how very humble I feel when I say that there is simply nothing missing in the life of our church. It is indeed comforting to see one's life work so blessed. For I have grown old in the work, its ceaseless demands, and its unrelenting schedule. This brings me to the happy purpose of my letter, Ed. My board of deacons has insisted that I allow them to hire an assistant to do the visitation, conduct the prayer services, and work with the older members. I will settle for no one for you. Ed, first, because you owe it to yourself to get out of that terrible situation in Smyrna. You could get killed there, man. Secondly, your fine spirit meant much to me in seminary, and I want to do something for you in return. And whatever your salary is, we'll triple it here and provide you with a home overlooking the river and a guaranteed retirement. You will accept, won't you, Ed? Luke J. Warm, D.D., Minister of the Church in Laodicea. Well, now, this uh, is funny because it's almost true of the way we go about our faith in Jesus Christ today. At the time in which this letter from our Lord through his servant John to these churches in Asia Minor was written, probably during the reign of Domitian, who was emperor over Rome at that time, it was a costly business to follow Jesus Christ, really costly. Not simply costing an hour every Sunday morning, or a few pennies that we placed in the collection plate, or a family prayer now and then, but something that was often sealed with one's own blood. For Domitian went mad thinking that he was a god and required that he be worshipped. And so when these people in Pergamos and in Smyrna and in Ephesus declared their faith in Jesus Christ, it really meant something. Now what about the current situation here? And Well, at this time, let me say this about Rome. Edward Gibbon has a penetrating comment about worship during this period. He says that, first of all, that the common people and the Roman Empire regarded all religions as equally true. He says that the philosophers regarded all religions as equally false, and that the magistrates regarded all religions as equally useful. Now, if you study the current trend of religious affairs in America, 
And you ask the average person about this, he would almost insist that all religions are equally true. If you ask many men of science, they would insist that all religions are equally false. And if you go to the politicians, they agree with all sides of every issue that they're all equally useful. Well, in Pergamum, to which this letter is written, there were people who had sealed their faith in Jesus Christ with their own blood. One is Antipas, my faithful witness. The word for a martyr is the word witness. He would not give in to what the emperor wanted. This was an exciting city, this city of Pergamum. It was a capital. It wasn't great in commerce like... Smyrna, nor was it great like Ephesus, but it was a, a capital city, like Raleigh is the capital of our state, and Austin is the capital of Texas. Uh, it, it was a capital city. may not have been the biggest, but it was capital. And there's always excitement around a, 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 a city like this. But here in this city, with its shrine to Domitian and its priests, that insisted upon people coming forward and declaring their allegiance to the emperor, the earliest Christians were put to a severe test because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now these people were stubbornly sacred in that they refused to give an inch on their faith in Jesus Christ. It meant all the world to them and they were willing to seal it with their blood and so there comes to them a commendation that in this learned city with its fantastic libraries, the word parchment, by the way, comes from Pergamum because here is where it was first invented and manufactured. But here they held firm to their faith in Jesus Christ. So the letter that comes to Pergamum is first of all a word of commendation for their faithfulness. But secondly, there is a complaint that is lodged against this church, and the complaint leads us into a lesson from the Old Testament. The complaint says that I know that there are some in your number that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And if you will take the trouble sometime to go back and read in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through, through chapter 25, you will find an amazingly fine piece of writing that tells you all about Balaam. And the complaint that is lodged there is also a lesson to us today as a church corporate and to us as individual followers of Jesus Christ because the church is made up of individuals. Balaam is a mysterious figure in some ways he had great powers, great eloquence, great prophetic knowledge, it seems. And the children of Israel 
who had been led by the hand of God out of Egypt toward their promised land are suddenly coming into the area of Moab. And the Moabites are afraid because they see this multitude of strangers coming. And the king of the Moabites, who is a man by the name of Balak, decides that he has figured out a way by which they may be destroyed. He has heard that there is a prophet whose name is Balaam, and that if Balaam curses a people, they are cursed. And that if Balaam blesses a people, they are blessed. So he decides that he will send and hire Balaam the prophet to curse the people of God, the Israelites. And so he sends uh, some of his representatives to the prophet's place. And these emissaries from the king Balak come. This is always interesting how diplomacy still follows this same uh, uh, manner. Here come some people with gifts to hire Balaam to curse the people of Israel for Balak. Well, Balaam is a preacher, you might say, and a preacher who wants to do right but he also wants to make a lot of good, a lot of money. I have a friend who makes me cringe every time he explains one of his projects. He says, I'm going to do a lot of good and make a lot of money. Better be careful. Do a lot of good and make a lot of money. Well, here Balaam has these emissaries from an impressive king approach him. They proposition him about cursing the people of Israel, and Balaam goes to pray about it. Well, there are certain things you don't need to pray about, and you're really getting yourself in trouble when you know something is wrong and you insist on going and praying about it anyway. So Balaam goes and prays about it and comes back and says, no, he can't do it, after a long time. So the, these emissaries from Balak go back home, tell the king about it, and the king already sees the weakness in Balaam. So this time he sends more impressive emissaries with greater gifts of money, and they come. And so, well, let's talk this thing over and see if you can't find some way that you can go. Now this time Balaam knows that he ought not to go, but he wants that money. He wants that honor. He wants that praise. And he begins to compromise his integrity and what he knows to be sure from God. And he starts off on the trip. An interesting thing happens. His beast of burden crashes his foot into a wall and hurts it. Now, this ought to tell Balaam that he ought to go back home, that God does not want him to go there. And God speaks to him through the dumb beast, telling him to turn and to go back. But Balaam insists, and so he goes on. Now, there is this about God. If we, on, if we insist on something, if we start compromising inside, he may grant us the request of our heart and send leanness into our soul. Balak went and he, Balaam went to Balak and he tried to curse the people of Israel, but it didn't work. 
Every time he tried to curse them, a blessing came out of his mouth. But he still wanted that money, and he made many wonderful speeches. He said, even though your king Balak should send me loads of silver and gold, I could not bless, curse the people whom the Lord has blessed. But he really doesn't mean it. And the book of Numbers goes on to tell us, and the book of Revelation, and the book of Peter, Second Peter, and the book of Jude, that Balaam figures out a way to get this money by advising the king Balak to seduce the children of Israel through fornication and by allowing the people of Israel to compromise in their worship and worship idols. The second commandment forbids us to make idols because God insists that he alone is God. Now, we who believe in Jesus Christ, who claim to follow in the train of the martyrs and the apostles, if we go back to such words as Peter uttered in the book of Acts, there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. We can compromise our integrity by broadening our viewpoint and saying it does not make any difference what a man believes as long as he is sincere. We may do this to build bigger churches. We may do this to have bigger budgets. But when we do, we are committing the sin which will lead to our undoing. And at Pergamum, this is what is warned against. Christ, the king and the head of the church, will not allow compromise here. The Christians have sealed their testimony with their blood. Now they are not to allow some members of their congregation to sneak in with this subtle suggestion that they compromise. We live in a time when a great conglomerate church is being constructed. And there are great dangers in this. We can adapt as our slogan, the more we get together, the happier we'll be. We could sing about God that he is a jolly good fellow that no one will deny. We can claim that the scandal of Christianity is that it is divided up into Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and Episcopalians. That's not the scandal of Christianity. The unity for which Christ prayed was a unity in doctrine. Thy word, O God, is truth. A unity in holiness. How can I join with an Anglican priest who reads Lady Chatterley's lover and tells people that they can commit fornication? How can I join with a Bishop Pike who talks to the dead? and denies the resurrection and the virgin birth. I'll die before I'll do that. I don't care how many conglomerates you bring up. Well, here is a message that comes to this type of shabby thinking today. The world will be impressed when it has Christian 
who are willing to stand for their faith like these earliest Christians stood for their faith and seal it with their blood if necessary. And we may very well have to go through that here in America. Their call, there comes a call to us to live lives that are holy. The Savior of the world is not Che Guevara. The dialogues between the Marxist and the church leaders. What dialogue can Jesus Christ have with Satan here? There are places where we cannot compromise, and we must be sacredly stubborn. Look at Martin Luther. Martin Luther stood before that group of German leaders at the Diet at Worms, and he said, I cannot go against the plain teaching of Scripture and my conscience. He said, I cannot and I will not retract. And years later, when he was discussing this with some of his friends, they asked him how he felt in that fantastic moment in church history. And Martin Luther said, I felt in that moment as if I were the church. Well, at Pergamum, this was the temptation that was coming. And so Christ speaks to his church. And he says to them, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there been that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Thou hast also them that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the conquerors of the people. Repent. That means change from this. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my own mouth. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Will you be faithful to Jesus Christ? I know ministers who are afraid to pray in the name of Jesus at a rotary club for fear that some Jew or some atheist will be offended. I will defend, even with my life, the right of a Jew or atheist to believe whatever he wants to believe. But I also will believe what I feel God has led me to believe, and I will stand for it. So be faithful to your faith. Don't compromise. Don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows save he that receives it. Let me tell you about that. We don't know what manna was. In fact, the very word manna means, what is it? But in the scriptures it is symbolic for food which God gives to man. It had to be gathered by man. And so if you are utterly faithful to Jesus Christ, if you are an overcomer in this time of great compromise and immorality, it says here, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. I think I know what that hidden manna is. That hidden manna is some precious communion service in which Jesus is very near. That hidden manna is sometimes when you're reading your scriptures and your very heart within you burns because you know that what God is saying to you is true that his promises are true, 
and that you may appropriate them for your own soul's needs. That hidden manna is that inner strength and peace that comes to the faithful follower of Jesus Christ. I will give him a white stone. A stone was, white stone was given to a man who was acquitted in a trial. This means that my sins are forgiven to me. This is justification, a white stone. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. The ancients had a custom of taking a white stone, and two friends would have engraved on a hard, pure, clean white stone each one's name, and they would have it cut in two, and one would get one piece of the stone and one the other. And years would go by, and when they got together again, they would fit the two stones back. And maybe this speaks to us of that fellowship which Christ has with those who are faithful to him, with those who are true to him. So the lesson that comes to us from the church of Pergamon is do not compromise your faith. You may have to be stubbornly sacred, but when you are, God will bless you for holding fast to that faith. Old Samuel Rutherford, in prison in Aberdeen for his faith in Christ, wrote back often to various people that he was instructing in the faith, and in one of his letters he says the most glorious thing. He says, You will not get leave to steal quietly away to heaven in the company of Christ. No, he says, you will have to bear some crosses and endure some losses. But he goes on to say that the cross of Christ is the sweetest burden that ever I bore. He says it is such a burden as wings are to a bird or sails are to a ship. And even though he was in prison in Aberdeen where it's cold, he could look at the stones on the world there and say that they glowed like rubies with the warmth of Jesus Christ to him that overcometh. Let us stand in prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, we live in the midst of days of great confusion. Help us to be faithful to the faith which we have in Jesus Christ, loyal to the fight which this may entail, unto the very finish of our days on this earth. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, now and forevermore. Amen. God be with you.